If you'd open your Bibles to Micah chapter 4 tonight, Micah chapter 4, we're going to look at the entire fourth chapter. I'm going to read it before we pray tonight. I'll point out some things as we, as we go through it. Micah chapter 4 verse 1 begins with a conjunction and that immediately connects us to what Micah had said Last week in verse 12, that Zion was going to be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And so the logical question would be, well, is this the end? I mean, is this the end of God's program with Israel? So that and becomes critical to, as it were, changing directions a little bit. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Now, these first three verses are almost identical to Isaiah chapter 2, the first four verses, almost identical. Beginning at verse 2, many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And then they... Now, what we're about to read here is actually on the wall of the United Nations in New York City. Actually, it's the quote that comes from Micah, but also from Isaiah. And I really don't think they're going to be able to accomplish this at the United Nations. But the text says, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry out loudly, is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth, writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. Now watch the two theirs. Go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron and your hoofs I will make bronze that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord, their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now that is a remarkable chapter. A lot of prophecy in there, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your people who have come out tonight to partake of it. We pray that this passage of scripture 
will be very understandable and very applicable, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Paul, in the book of Romans, and he's writing in the New Testament church, he says that there will come a day when all Israel will be saved. That's what he predicts. He says that in the church age, so that isn't even an Old Testament prophecy. That's a prophecy that he predicts will happen in the church age. Well, you look at Israel in Micah's day, and you look at Israel in our day, and you say, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like there's coming a day when Israel's going to be saved. Because we're living in a world in which they don't seem to want the word of God. In fact, we're living in a world which most people don't seem to seriously want to be taught the word of God. We're living at a time when churches don't take the word of God seriously. There are people being led by those who claim they're right with God who are not. Their claim that they get visions from the Lord. The Lord told them to say this. The Lord spoke to them and they claim that God somehow revealed to them some revelatory data. God's in their midst and they're leading the people straight into judgment and they're not leading the people into truth. And Micah told them that in the previous chapters. He told them, you're being led a wrong way here by these political religious leaders. They're not leading you into a right relationship with God. They're leading you into judgment. He wanted God's people to realize it's not going to always be that way, though. Because God is going to step into history. And he will, for those who loved him and those who loved his word, turn things around. They're going to shine forever. What we learn here in the fourth chapter is there's coming a day when all nations of the world will want to be taught the word of God so they can walk in the ways of God and please God. And there's going to come a day when Israel, Israel, will be the dominant nation of the world. God is going to do some remarkable things for the nation Israel. The first three chapters have been hard-hitting. Mike has been going after politics. He's been going after religion. He's basically said, you're taking the people wrong way, but you need to understand this. There's still hope and there's still a future for the people of God. And it's kind of like we can apply to our own individual lives. I mean, as believers in Jesus Christ, sometimes we just mess up. Isn't it good to know that in the end, we're going to be in heaven anyway? In spite of the fact we've messed up. That's kind of what's happening here, only we're not talking about a trip to heaven. We're talking about a kingdom being established on earth. Now, Micah was a prophet of God, and part of the responsibility of a prophet of God was to foretell the future. And as we mentioned, to this point in the book of Micah, he has been confronting political and religious leadership with the fact that they've drifted way away from God. They've drifted way away from the word of God, and he had been warning them, the judgment of God is going to come against you. But eventually, he wanted Israel to understand, you're still going to be a blessed nation. Why? Not because you deserve it, by the grace of God. God has made promises to the nation Israel. He's going to fulfill those promises. But Micah knew that the blessings of God will not exist until God takes over the world. Micah is going to reveal a lot of powerful things. One of the things he'll reveal is the guy who's going to take over the world, and you'll see that coming up, Lord willing, next Sunday night, will be born in Bethlehem. There's one who will come on the scene who is going to be your one, who is going to one day take over the world. So this is a powerful prophetic text, and there are many new things that we learn from this passage of Scripture. There are three prophetic parts that Micah reveals, and the first one is what God's going to do to the nations, verses 1 to 5. Now, as I mentioned, These verses here in verses 1 to 3 are repeated almost identical in language in Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. 
Micah, at this point, has been blasting a corrupt political world, a corrupt religious world. They're ruining the nation. He's already established that very carefully and clearly. Now, there are eight observations we want to make about this remarkable prediction that Micah makes will happen concerning those nations. Observation number one, it'll happen in the last days. We read in verse one, and it will come about in the last days. Now, when you read that prepositional phrase, in the last days, it's an eschatological future that Micah is discussing, and it's specifically an eschatological future for Israel, not the church. And usually when this phrase is discussed, what's going to happen in the last days, for example, when Jesus talked about that when he was here on earth, he included the great tribulation, the seven-year period of time in which God would pour out his wrath on Israel, then regather Israel, and also the kingdom that he would establish, the millennial kingdom here on earth. You can read his eschatological viewpoints on that in Matthew 24 and 25. So there is a last days program that God has in mind for Israel. There's a last days program God has in mind for the church. We're looking for the rapture to go to heaven. We're not looking for a kingdom to be established here on earth. Israel's looking for a kingdom to be established here on earth. And this is a reference to the last days program for Israel. And the church, and we need to understand that, is nowhere here in view, although we will be able to make some applications to much of this tonight. Now, Micah had been proclaiming the fact that Zion's going to be plowed under and Jerusalem would be a heap of ruins, that temple was going to be destroyed. So naturally, the thought would arise, well, is this it for Israel? Is the story over? I mean, Micah, you're basically saying we're going to be plowed under like a field, we're going to become a heap of ruins. Is it all over? Is there any future hope that God would do something good for Israel? Do we still have a chance that God would intervene and bless us? That's where this last day's prophecy becomes so critical. Is there any future hope for the United States? Or is it all over? What about God's people? Is it all over? And the particular thing they're going to bring out here is about the last days is going to be about the temple of God. Well, is there any hope that that will ever be rebuilt? Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll see the Babylonians mentioned here in this text tonight, he came in in 586 B.C. and he leveled the temple. Burned it down. Then they got it rebuilt. And then Titus in AD 70, he came in with his Roman military and he leveled it. It hasn't been rebuilt since. So you read this story here, this text here about in the last days, this stuff's going to happen. And you do have to wonder, well, is that really true? Is that really going to happen? Which brings us to the second observation. The house of the Lord is going to sit on a mountain and the people will stream to it. We read in verse 1. In the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Now this prediction of this house of the Lord being rebuilt occurs in Micah. It also occurs in the book of Isaiah. It's going to be a house of prayer. It's going to be rebuilt. It'll be a house that will communicate the word of God. And frankly, what is predicted is this will become the most important place in the world. Micah is predicting here that there will come a time when the house of the Lord will stand on a mountain and will be the chief place of the world. The house here is not the church. We're talking about the temple of Jerusalem. People from all over the world will travel to worship God. We know that it has not been fulfilled yet because that has never happened yet. But there's a simmering right now. Just this past May that's going on in Israel 
to get that temple rebuilt. A group of Jews just two months ago met to discuss the rebuilding of the temple. They made a contact with Haim Dolan, who's known for his architectural work and his ability to construct things in a pretty fast way. And they actually gathered together a group of men who claimed they were connected to the tribe of Levi. This is just two months ago. And they actually went down to the temple area where it's going to be rebuilt, start singing hymns. And the people wanted to know, of course, what you're doing down here. And they're talking about the fact that we need to get that temple rebuilt. We need to get that temple rebuilt. And one of the Jews that was there said, the Jewish worship at a future temple is just a matter of time. So right now in Israel, there's a sense that temple needs to be rebuilt. It's predicted by Micah here, the house of the Lord is going to be rebuilt. The second observation is many nations will come to the place and will want to be in a right relationship with God. Verse 2, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and go to the house of God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways. Now, nations of the world are going to one day recognize the honor and the superiority of Israel, and they're going to recognize the unique position that this temple holds in world events. Nations are going to go to this location to seek the Lord. That's what Zechariah tells us. In other words, the nation Israel is going to make such an impact on the world, this temple is going to be such a world-renowned place, that nations of the world are going to want to go there to worship God. Now, there's no place in history where nations have wanted to go to Israel and worship God at the temple. Not nations of the world. If nations of the world have wanted to go to Israel, it's for the purpose of let's go take the land over. Let's go destroy things in that land. Not let's go worship God in their temple. But that's what's predicted here. There's never been this international enthusiasm for people of nations to want to go hear the word of God so they can obey it. What's described here is a futuristic prediction that God is going to do something absolutely amazing. And apparently, what will initially happen is that these people will want to go to hear God's word and they'll say, come, let us go. That's what the text says. Come, let us go to the mountain of God. People will be talking about this all over the world. What they don't realize is there's real serious ramifications to go hear the word of God. And there are three futuristic national realities that are brought out. Nations will actually travel there. Nations will actually travel to Jerusalem, not to see the sights. As we mentioned this morning, they'll be going to Jerusalem not to take tours and go down memory lane of where this and that happened. This is predicted that they're actually going to want to go to this place to worship there. Israel will be the nation of God, will be offering true priestly worship that's God-honoring and acceptable to God. And nations of the world are going to travel there and participate in that. The second reality is nations of the world will travel there to be taught the word of God. You'll notice in verse 2 that he may teach us about his ways. That word will be going forth from Jerusalem, and it sure isn't doing that now. If you said, well, where can you buy the word of God? Where can you publish the word of God? The last place in the world right now you'd say it would be Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem, boy. They'll put the word of God in your hands. You can't say that today. But there is coming a day when people are going to actually want to go to the land of Israel to worship God for the purpose of being taught the word of God. They're not going to want to go there so they can hear something religious that will tickle their religious fancy. They're going to want to go there to be taught. Jesus Christ will be there in person. Man, it's going to be something. 
He will be there and he will establish his kingdom. He'll be teaching the word of God. People from all over the world will say, hey, let's go. Let's go there and be taught by him. Which brings us to the third reality. Nations will travel there so they may be taught so they can obey the word of God. And the text says that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You know, it is a wonderful thing when people want to go hear the word of God as long as they want to apply it. If people want to go hear the word of God just because it's something interesting and novel to do, that's not a good motive. But it is a wonderful motive when people want to go hear the word of God and then they want to respond to the spirit of God and the conviction that takes place when they hear the word of God. The people will travel from all over the world. They'll want to go to hear the word of God and they're going there because they want to walk in the ways of God. Now, if you ask most people, why do you want to come to the United States? What's your motive? You're from another country. Why do you want to come to the United States? Well, we want to go there because of opportunities. Why do you want to go visit Washington, D.C.? Well, we want to go to visit Washington, D.C. because there's great history there. Just imagine, if you can for a moment, and it's almost impossible to imagine this, but just imagine if Washington, D.C. was so committed to God and his word that people from all over the world said, we want to go to the United States of America and we want to go to Washington, D.C. so that we can be taught the word of God so we can obey it. Man, that would be like a dreamland. Most people who even go to church don't think like that. Thank God we have a group of people that do love to be taught the word of God and they do want to know what it says. They do want to apply the word of God because what is predicted here is there will be a time when people from all over the world will want to go to Israel to be taught the word of God so they can obey it. The fourth observation is God's revelatory word will go forth from Mount Zion and from Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, and from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Man, here's government firing at its best. Remember, Mike has been blasting the political leadership. He's been blasting religious leaders too. But here it is at its best. The word of God is going forth from the capital city. The people love it. They love to hear the word of God. They love to respond to the word of God. And by the way, notice it's the word of God they're going to hear. They're not going to hear religion. And they're not going to hear bands. And they're not going to hear some lecture about denominations or religious emotionalism where it's just some rah-rah rally. They're going to hear the word of God. And there will come a day when people will travel to hear the true word of God all the way to Israel, all the way to Jerusalem. They're not going to have to be begged to do this. They're not going to have to be manipulated to do this. They're going to want to do this of their own volition. And that's the way it is right now for those that are right with God. They want to go hear the word of God. They're sick and tired of religion and nonsense. They want to go hear the word of God. It will happen from the nations to Israel. Now, the fifth observation is God will judge between peoples and nations, verse 3, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Now, I think there's a reference here to the judgment of the nations that will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But what people don't realize is when they go hear the word of God, there's judgment there. God is there. No nation and no individual is going to be exempt from the judgment of God. Even we as believers are going to face the Bema Seat judgment. And this will certainly put an end to nations who think they can do what they please. Those leaders of the political world and the religious world who think, well, we can just 
fly by the seat of our pants and we can just do anything we want to do. They need to understand this. No, you're heading to judgment here. It's pretty serious what's described here. You're going to be judged. God will judge. The Lord will judge between many peoples. He will render decisions for mighty distant nations, and that would include the United States of America. The sixth observation is God will put an end to war. Verse 3 says, Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, when swords become plowshares and spears become pruning hooks, the focus now is on working the land, not on warring in the land. And quite honestly, Israel has never known this kind of peace where they can just enjoy their land. They've never known that. In fact, if you want to be real technical, the battle that is going on right now in the land of Israel is still the battle between Isaac and Ishmael. Or let's say it another way. It's between Israel and the Arabs. That's still a battle that's going on over the land. What is described here is that in the last days, there's going to be a total peace on earth when people from all over the world will be living in peace. They'll be focused on what they're doing in the land. They won't be at war in the land. Now, you and I who have known the Lord have experienced peace in our hearts, but we've never seen this kind of peace in the world. And even though the United Nations has this saying on the wall of their United Nations in New York, the fact of the matter is they're not going to be able to pull this off. In fact, I don't see where they're trying to lecture people on turning their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. In fact, they arm the people that they like and they don't arm the people they don't like. And that's what they're known to do. They'll get behind some and send them more weaponry, and they won't get behind others. They'll send them less weaponry. Well, what the Lord is going to do in the end is put an end to all of that. He'll put an end to war. Then the seventh observation is every person will live in their own place without fear. Verse 4 says, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. Oh, boy. No more worries about mass shootings. No more worries about some ruthless political religious leaders threatening to intimidate the people, take away their money and property. Each family will have their own place, their own property. They won't be paying taxes anymore to godless powers. They'll be enjoying life. That's the description here. They'll be enjoying life with individual prosperity. There will be peace. There will be blessings. There will be no one, and notice the text, no one to make them afraid. So no one will ever have to worry about being scared of anything or anyone. God wants his people to know, that's what I'm going to do. Why? The end of verse 4, because the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. That's why. Not because you deserve it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That is, a mouth of the Lord is the Lord of Sabaoth and the name of the Lord. He has spoken this, the Lord of hosts, which means... He is the Lord that controls all the sovereign armies on earth, all the sovereign armies in heaven. He is over all of them. He has spoken it, and he's going to bring this to pass. And the reason why the people will be able to live without fear and prosper is because God's controlling all the forces of the universe, and he's seeing to it that that's their situation. The eighth observation is God's people will walk in the ways of God forever, never walk in the ways of false gods of nations anymore. Verse 5, 
Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There will be no more immorality, no more worshiping false gods, no more fraud political religious leaders, no more stealing, no more murder, no more false religions of any kind. All of God's people will worship one true God, the God of the Bible. What a day that'll be. When everybody in the world loves God, Everybody in the world loves the word of God. God says, that's what I'm going to do in the future. Now, the second part of this is what God's going to do for his nation, verses 6 to 8. In that day, declares the Lord, there's going to be three promises that God makes to his people of what he's going to do specifically for them, and this has to do with the nation Israel. He says, for example, in verse 6, In that day I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I've afflicted. So God will assemble and regather those whom he afflicted in that day. And I want you to notice it was God who afflicted people. His own people. Why? Because they wouldn't obey him. They followed these deadbeat leaders in the way they were leading them, and they would not listen to his word. They wouldn't follow his word or obey his word. They followed those corrupt political religious leaders that were leading them astray from the word of God. And what God wants his people to know is, I do chastise my people. This is not a popular theme. A lot of people don't like this particular theme, but it is a true theme of the Bible. God can chastise his people. He can withhold his blessings. And he says right here, I'm the one who did it. He takes full responsibility for it. He says, I'm the one who afflicted you. I afflicted you because you weren't serious about me and you weren't serious about my word. If people will get serious about him and his word, he can also turn that all around and turn that into blessings. And look at who he assembles. He assembles the lame and the outcasts. I love that. People that were broken and bruised by sin, people that were mangled, In life, he just delights in gathering them up and making them his own and making them great tokens of his grace. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. His second promise is I'm going to straighten and strengthen them and be their God forever. Verse 7 says, I will make the lame a remnant. Now, I don't want to just gloss over that. And the outcast a strong nation. When he says that I'm going to make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, we learn something significant here. A remnant refers to the minority, not the majority. So what grace does is it gets the remnant of people that did love his word and he fixes it for them. That's what grace does. He takes people that are outcast and broken and he fixes them up. That's what he's going to do to this whole nation. And that is something that we need to also individually remember. God can fix individual lives. God can take an individual life and put that life in disaster. He can take that individual life and he can hit it with a bunch of negatives. But he can also take that same individual life and he can bring that out of disaster and he can fix it. And he can make it a wonderful example of his grace. That's what he says I'm going to do for the remnant. I'm not going to do it for the majority. I'll do it for the remnant. His third promise is, I'll once again make Jerusalem the capital of the kingdom. He says in verse 8, as for you, tower of the flock. And the tower, by the way, because of the 
particular feminine noun that's used here is a reference to Jerusalem. As for you, the tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come even, the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. God says, one day I'm going to allow Jerusalem to be the central place that watches over my entire worldwide flock. Now just... Think for a minute what he just said in those first eight verses. Let's recap what he says he's going to do. Twelve amazing futuristic promises. Jerusalem will feature the house of God. It'll be the chief spot in the world. Jerusalem will attract all people of the world. They're going to all want to go there. Jerusalem will be a place that will be known for teaching the word of God. Jerusalem will be a place where God's revelation and word will be found. Jerusalem will be a place where God will judge the nations. Jerusalem will be a place where world peace is brought into existence. Jerusalem will be a place where there is personal prosperity. There is eternal security. There will be an eternal focus on the true God. It will be a place of national regathering, national strength, national dominion. What a future. I'm telling you, Israel has never seen, Jerusalem's never seen anything like this. Even in her best days under David and Solomon, she's never seen anything like this. That is what God says, I'm going to do for that nation. But she has rejected Jesus Christ as her Messiah. And frankly, it's the political and religious leaders that have um, led them that way. Still tonight, she rejects Jesus Christ as her Messiah. She's been led down this awful path by the leaders of her nation. So that brings us to the third part, what God says to his nation, verses 9 to 13. He gives them six specific messages. Number one, the leaders in whom you trusted, they're the reason you're suffering. He says in verse 9, now why do you cry loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony that has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? God basically says to his people, you need to answer some questions because in answering the questions you'll have the answers to why you're suffering and basically Micah says the reason you're suffering is you followed the wrong leaders you followed the wrong leaders the reason you're in a state of misery is you didn't want my word you weren't serious about me and my word what you were more interested in listening to was the counselors you wanted the counselors that would tell you what you wanted to hear You wanted the political leaders that would tell you something that would just appease you. And it's interesting that the king and the counselor, they have perished. It's interesting that they bring that up. Why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Has your counselor perished? And I understand that to mean God is saying, I am targeting these guys. Take a look around what I did to them. I brought them down. You know, in the United States, we have the wonderful privilege in a democracy to vote for leaders. Boy, I say this, use your vote wisely. And I know there's just a lot of stuff that goes on in this, but you want to use your vote wisely because if you vote for some leader that's moving this nation from God and the word of God and from what's right and righteous and just and true, we are accountable and we're responsible and we'll take a disciplinary hit for that. So what God says is, you're crying and wailing. Well, why don't you look at the leaders you followed that led you into this? Which brings us to the second message. You're going to suffer because of my judgment. Verse 10, writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. 
For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. Now, that's an amazing prediction. Let me put this in a historical context here for you. You'll see how amazing a prediction this is. First of all, when Micah makes this prediction, Babylon isn't even on the radar. Assyria is on the radar. Assyria was threatening Israel to the north and about to swing down to Judah in the south. And Micah makes this prediction in about 730 B.C. And Babylon would not come in and destroy Jerusalem until 586 B.C. So put this in your mind. Micah is making this amazing prediction 144 years before it would come to fruition. And God is actually revealing the future. He's telling Micah, you tell the people, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to bring Babylon, Babylon, in, and he's going to literally take you away. It's an amazing prediction. Because when the people would have thought, who's our big enemy, they would have thought Assyria. Babylon wouldn't even have been in their minds. But I'm telling you, it does show you that God has the sovereign power to control the future. He controls the people that are in a good relationship with him, he controls people that aren't in a good relationship with him. He controls powers that honor him and powers that don't honor him. They're like his little puppets. He'll move them around and accomplish his sovereign will. And when he uses the illustration here of the labor pains, writhe and labor and give birth, he's basically saying, now before you get to blessings, these blessings I'm telling you about, you're going to go through a lot of hard labor. Before you get to the end result of those blessings, I've just told you that's going to hit in Jerusalem, the blessings that will be wonderful for you, you're going to go through a lot of labor. And what God can do nationally, he can do individually. In other words, if you stay true to the word of God, he can bless you. Start drifting. Start drifting. He can make a world cave in fast. Fast. So we want to stay committed to the scriptures and stay steady in the word of God. His third message is, you'll see me deliver you from judgment. Verse 10 says, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. There, there. Now that's interesting because just by using those two theirs, he's basically saying it isn't going to happen here. It's going to happen there. And... The there would indicate it's not going to be instant. You're going to go through some difficulties in this judgment. God said, I'm in sovereign charge of what's going on in your world here. I'm in sovereign charge of what's going on in this nation. I will redeem my people. I will rescue my people. But you need to understand this. It'll happen there. It's not going to happen here at the immediate time. In the end days, I'll make Jerusalem the capital. But before that happens, you're going to Babylon. You know, one of the great Jewish entertainers was George Kohan, who wrote a famous military song, Over There, Over There. And the lyrics that he wrote were, Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums Rum tumming everywhere, so prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. Well, we'll be over there, we're coming over, and we won't come back until it's over, over there. That's the story right here of Israel. You're not coming back till it's over, over there. In other words, God said, I'm going to spread you out. I'm going to actually remove you from this city. 
I'm going to take you out of the land because you did not want my word. You weren't interested in listening to me. And I'm telling you, you're not going to ultimately come back here until you've experienced what I'm going to let you experience over there. Which brings us to his fourth message. You will see many enemies rise up and gloat over you. Verse 11 says, And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted and let her eyes gloat over Zion. The Babylonians would be the most immediate threat to this, which would come, as I mentioned, 144 years later. The Assyrians would come in, but they wouldn't do the damage the Babylonians would do. In fact, it was Hezekiah who kind of got a stay of execution for this part of the world when he started responding what Micah was telling him here, that they needed to get right with God. And we saw that last time. Hezekiah said, that's what we need to do all right. And when Hezekiah led as a king the southern Judah and Jerusalem to respond to the word of God, God put the judgment of God in abeyance. But what God predicts is going to happen, though, is many nations, and that's what he says in verse 11, many nations I've assembled together, and they're going to come against you, because you will not listen to my word. And so... In 586 B.C., after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, then you have Persia, Medo-Persia. And after Medo-Persia takes over that part of the world, then you have Greece. After Greece takes over that part of the world, then you have Rome. After Rome takes over Jerusalem in that area, you have the Muslim Arabs come in. After the Muslim Arabs, you have the Christian Crusades. They went in and took over that part of the world. Then after the Christian Crusades, you have the Egyptian Muslims, and you have the Turkish Muslims. And then, of course, you have Adolf Hitler. He's trying to kill Jews all over the world. And then you have the Syrians and the Iraqis, and they all rose up and they gloated over Israel. They laughed at Israel. They scoffed at Israel. Proverbs says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Problem is, their ways never please the Lord. So he didn't make any of those have peace with them. One right after another, they came in. Why? Because this people would not listen to the word of God. His fifth message was, those nations have no idea what God's doing with them. Verse 12 says, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his purpose, for he's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Now, I think this is clearly a prediction to what's going to happen at Armageddon. The nations are going to gather together and go against Israel. They have no idea what's going on. They have no idea the sovereignty of God in this. They don't understand what God is doing. They're going to line up against Israel. And when they line up against Israel, God's going to destroy them. I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that most political leaders of most nations, including the United States, and most religious leaders of most nations, including the United States, have no idea what's going on according to the will of God. They have no clue as to why God is even permitting them to make decisions they're making. They don't have a clue. They have no sense of the sovereign secret work of God. There is an arrogance. There is a defiance of the word of God. What they don't realize is God is behind this setting them up for judgment. It's exactly what he's describing here. These nations that have scoffed at you, made fun of you, mocked you, I'm just setting up for judgment. I think that's going on right now with Christians. I think people that are serious about the word of God are seeing more and more that they're, 
alienated from this world, and there are those that are making things difficult for people who stand for the word of God. They're making them out to be the oddball. God says, you don't understand what I'm doing. I'm setting all these people up because I'm going to bring all these people down. Which brings us to the final message. Eventually, you'll be the victor. They'll be the loser. That's how he wraps it up in verse 13. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God said, eventually, Israel, I want you to know I'm going to bless you. You'll be the dominant power of the world. You'll have more wealth and riches than any other nation of the world. And you'll have it all rightly devoted to me. You'll be honoring me and recognizing me for who I am. In the end, what Micah says to the people of God is, yes, you've gone off track here, but you're going to come out on top. God has promised that Israel will be on top. And God has promised every individual believer will eventually be on top. And we need to be the remnant. We need to be the remnant who worships God, who seeks to carefully and accurately understand the scriptures and apply the scriptures. We need to be that remnant of people that love the word of God, because when we become that, God will bless us. That is Micah chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for what you have promised in future for Israel. And we know that you've given us in the church some great future promises too. The common denominator that I would pray for both Israel and us as individuals is we would be serious-minded people about carefully understanding and applying the scriptures. I thank you for this church and the people of this church because the vast majority that are in this church are real serious about that. They don't go in for nonsense. They're serious about the word. I pray you bless them for that. In Jesus' name, amen.